Take your Bibles and turn to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 13, Acts chapter 13, as we begin in verse 1. I know in your bulletin it talks about Acts chapter 11, and we have looked at, at really the end of that chapter over the past couple of weeks as we've talked about who we should be as a church and being a first-class church. And God has given this church, again, such a heritage, but there are always challenges that God gives us. No matter who we are and how we've served, God would challenge us with his word and he would set forth his vision for us. And in Acts chapter 11, we've seen the church at Antioch and we've seen how it has responded to God. We've seen already six characteristics of what I call a first class church. So with Acts chapter 11 being in the background and us being able to see God's work at the church at Antioch, now I want to focus on those first three verses of chapter 13. Notice as Dr. Luke writes, he says, Now in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And they ministered to the Lord and fasted. As they did this, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. So much packed in three small verses. It speaks to us about a church that is engaged in worship, a church that is sensitive to the Spirit of God, and a church that is committed to missions. You find all those characteristics, I think, bound up in those three verses. Notice what it says to us. It says in verse 2 that this church had come together to minister to the Lord. Another way to translate that is they came together to worship. It was a public type of service. It was a gathering together of the collective body of Christ in Antioch. You see, a church that is a first-class church will engage in worship. Worship would be such a part of what a church does. And in the New Testament day, and those early believers, worship was a priority. They gathered together. Now listen, worship should be a, a daily activity in your life and in mine. You agree with me on that. It should be a daily activity. Worship is not just restrained to one hour on Sunday morning. We all should have worship moments. And a few weeks ago, I talked about how even in our own personal lives, whether it's um, driving down the road or, or perhaps in a personal quiet time, we can experience Christ and we can worship him. And we should. This should not be the only time during the week you worship. If it is, then God's calling you to deepen your relationship and have some just good moments, satisfying moments with him. With that being said, it is still important to gather together with the family of God. It's still important. Again, notice, they're coming together. They want to experience God in some way. And God is going to speak to them as they come together. Now, I'm not always going to point out all the tenses and all the other things, but when it serves its purpose for the Scripture, when it serves the purpose of somehow bringing significance to us, I, I try to 
give you a little bit. So notice in verse 2 when it says, as they ministered to the Lord, that is a present tense type of verb. In other words, it, it speaks of an ongoing activity. In other words, it was a natural occurrence for them just to get together and to worship God. It was natural for them. It was ongoing. It was a priority for them. I'm thankful to you that you're here this morning and that you've made at least this Sunday morning a priority to be with the family of God here at Temple to worship. But that should be always a priority for us. We should always have a priority in our life of gathering together as God's people. And as you look across culture today, I think that priority is slipping somewhat. Wouldn't you agree? That that's not the priority in people's lives. Uh, You see study after study where even those who call themselves Christians, uh, the gathering together of God's people is not necessarily a priority. It's just an option. But there's something that is so dynamic about joining together with the family of God. Look, I enjoy my personal times, but I enjoy my corporate time of worship too. Now, I know you look at me and you say, well, you're the preacher. You should. All of us should enjoy the times of worship that we have together and never take those for granted. God has given us a great opportunity even to gather this morning. And and I think something happens when you join together. I, I don't think it's a mistake when... We have the scripture and it's recorded for us that where two or three are gathered together, there he is in the midst of them. Not to say that the Holy Spirit departs from me when I'm alone. It's just that there is a special dynamic. There's something to experience in the presence of God when we come together. I've often described Sunday morning, for me at least, as the Super Bowl of my week. You know what that means? It's the main event of my week to be able to come together and experience God with you. And, and I love the way Leif Blad talks about Isaiah chapter 6. He says we come together to experience God's person. We experience God's power. We experience his presence. We experience his purposes and his plans for our lives. We experience that. And we need to do that in spirit and in truth. I say to you that a couple of obstacles or barriers, I think, exist today for us to experience true worship. I want you to hear hear this clearly this morning. One, one barrier for us to experience true worship or engage in true worship is when we, it's when we begin to emphasize performance instead of participation performance instead of participation what do i mean by that we come on sunday morning and and those early believers here came together to worship it wasn't just to see a performance now again i love to hear you all sing did you hear me say that this morning everybody say yes look at me yes i don't want to offend i love to hear you all play i love that but it's not just a performance that we're just coming and saying man that was great stuff it is so that this choir and this orchestra and Jeremy and others of us that we will lead into a place of worship where we will encounter God face to face that we will experience our relationship renewed and refreshed in him that we are participating 
And there's something about coming together and just worshiping and participating with the family of God. Another thing that you will hear me from time to time mention, I think is a barrier to the church's ministry, uh, worship. I think it's a barrier to so many things in our work today. And that is something that has been called professionalism. Professionalism. Now, I like being professional. I like having things excellent. I like to hear the right notes. I like to try to do the right things kind of like you, right? But remember when these people were coming together to worship in the New Testament, in in verse 2, as they ministered to the Lord, they did not come to God in a professional way. They came to God in a humble way. And there's something to be said about that. Certainly, we want to do everything we can with excellence because God deserves excellence from our lives. But when we come to him, we come to him just as we are. We don't come to him with a professional stance. We come to him as the sinners that we are who have fallen short of the glory of God, who are dependent upon him for everything that we have in life. And we come together to worship. This is a church that was engaged in worship. They met together regularly. It was an ongoing activity to worship. It wasn't just, we can see this as we look at verse 2 and verse 3. It wasn't just a meeting. It was a meeting with God. So notice this. In verse 2 it says, as they ministered, as they worshiped, as they fasted, It says, the Holy Spirit said, now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. So they worshiped the Lord. They were engaged in worship. And while they were doing that, the Holy Spirit of God, God himself spoke to this congregation. And they were sensitive to what the Holy Spirit was doing in their midst. Now, This, again, is interesting because if you look at that word said or spoke, it means that that the Holy Spirit spoke in a decisive way to that church. That church, they they knew that the Holy Spirit had spoken. Now, how how did God speak in this way? I'm not quite sure. Perhaps he had spoken through the prophets that were listed in verse one. Maybe one of the prophets had stood and had spoken for the Lord. We're not told. We, We don't know. It just says somehow they recognized that God was speaking to them. And it wasn't just one person that had figured that out. It was as though the whole church experienced the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit in their lives. They knew, they knew that the Holy Spirit had spoken. I I, I almost just get chills when I think about that. Not because I'm thinking of some electrical force out there as the Holy Spirit. To think that the person, the third person of the Trinity, the comforter, the one called alongside, the dynamic force of our lives would be willing to speak to us holy spirit spoke and to know that we can collectively know that he is speaking to us as a church 
and as a people. I've always been challenged by that. I've always been challenged about God. How would we know that it's you that's speaking and not us? How would we know that it's you speaking, not our programs, not our personalities, not how would we know that it was you? And Father, as you spoke to us through your Holy Spirit, could we sense that same type of unity? Unity together. The Holy Spirit spoke. When I read this passage, I often think back to a preacher that I studied some time ago. His name was George W. Truett. Some of you probably never heard of Dr. Truett. But when I was up at Blue Mountain College, they made us kind of do biographical sketches on different preachers who were living and some who had completed their ministry and gone on to be with the Lord. And we had to do all kinds of work on these different people. And for some reason, I got assigned Dr. George W. Truett. Again, any of you ever heard of Dr. Truett? Hey, look at y'all. I'm pre- Hold on just a minute. We're closer to Dallas here, aren't we, than I was in Baton Rouge? Yeah, I just now figured that out, I guess. Anyway, Dr. George W. Truett, longtime pastor at First Baptist Church of Dallas, Texas. Now, many of you had heard of Dr. Criswell that was there, and Dr. Criswell was a great pastor, was there 50 or so years. But before there was a Dr. Criswell, before First Baptist Church of Dallas had, had even thought of Dr. Criswell, there was Dr. George W. Truett, who was there for 40-plus years, almost 50 years, about 48 years, I think. He was there at First Baptist Dallas. That is a long time, right? And Leslie said after moving this week, Y'all better get ready because it's got to be a 48-year ministry here too. Never again. (laughs) But 48 years, Dr. Truett was at First Baptist Church of Dallas. Wonderful, great things. In the early 1900s, even during World War I, he was one of the most noted preachers in the United States of America. He took off. His church allowed him to take off for a while actually to go and be a chaplain during the war incredible incredible man incredible speaker i found a couple of old recordings of him and i would listen to him i I remember his theme was yeah you you start low you go slow you rise higher and you take fire he said in the pulpit that's what you do great preacher but do you know how he was called Do you know how he surrendered his life to ministry? Like so many others, he had not not planned on going into ministry. He had not planned on preaching and being a pastor. Rather, he was going to be an educator. Raised in North Carolina, had planned on being a teacher, perhaps a principal one day. He moved to Texas to follow some of his family, and he began to serve at a small church there in Texas as the Sunday school superintendent. Every now and then he would fill the pulpit when the preacher was gone and he would preach. And then one day, now you would know this this has to be in the late 1800s because one day they had business meeting on Saturday morning. 
before they had anything else to do on Saturday morning. Could you imagine us calling a business meeting on Saturday morning? If we do, it's going to be serious, right? A business meeting. He walked into the church, did not know what this meeting was about, but he walked into the church and he noticed that it was just packed. People everywhere. And they began to get up and they began to talk. And one of the older deacons got up and he said, We move that we ordain George W. Truitt to the gospel ministry. Well, I have read again his biography. It says that he stood in the back and he said, You have appalled me. I bet they had, huh? You have appalled me. You have appalled my life. How in the world could you ask me to do this thing? And they said to him, we believe that God has spoken, has convicted us as a church and as a people, that this is what we should do. We move that a council be formed and you be ordained. He said, wait, wait, wait. Wait just six months. Wait just six months. And then let's see what God would do. And the older deacon looked and he said, we dare not wait six hours. For we know that God has convicted us to do this thing. They called forth a council and that night... Dr. Truett said he wrestled with himself. He wrestled with God. He sought what God would have him to do. And by that next morning, he had surrendered his life to the gospel ministry. And he was ordained. He was ordained. As I said to you, some 48 years or so, he pastored First Baptist Church of Dallas. Some 48 years, he had one of the greatest ministries of any preacher in the United States of America. Dr. George W. Truitt. Now, I read that. I remember being at Blue Mountain again, reading that in class and doing the report I did on him and how he was called. And I said, oh, God, if your Holy Spirit would only speak to our churches that strongly these days. We wouldn't have division. We wouldn't have people doing this. We wouldn't have people. But Lord, if you would only speak so clearly and so loudly that we would set people aside and that we would see your work done. And I'll have to tell you, I was convicted. Because as I thought that and as I prayed that, it was as though God said to me, hold on, Reggie, I still speak just as clearly. I still speak just as loudly. It's not my communication, but rather it's your reception and the church's reception of his message. And I'm going to say to you that since that point, I have prayed. I've looked at this scripture where it says that they knew beyond a shadow of a doubt God spoke wherever, however he did that. It's left for us in an unclear way, I think, just to remind us that God can speak in so many different ways. And when he does, we need to heed that and listen to it. And I have prayed that God would confirm in people's hearts and lives, in the church's life. So it's not just 
it's not just what the preacher said. It's not just what the deacon said. It's not just what somebody stood up and felt like in their heart. It was that God himself had spoken in such a real way that it was confirmed in the spirit of each individual that was a member of that church. Because listen, the way I understand the New Testament, the way I see God's word open to me, I, I believe that the Holy Spirit lives in each and every one of us we're believers he resides in us permanently and thus he is there to guide us and lead us and if it is of god then hopefully and prayerfully at least most of us could experience that word from him and we could see god work in our lives and it would be confirmed in different folks i've asked i've told people before some people have said to me, uh, how, do, how do I know God's calling me to the ministry? Well, there are a whole lot of different ways to talk to folks about that. And, but one thing is, what do other believers say? Have they given you confirmation? I remember after I surrendered to preach. I was 16 again, and I surrendered to preach, and I came forward, and I remember what everybody said afterwards. We knew you were going to be a preacher one day. We knew you were going to preach. I wanted to say, what didn't you tell me beforehand, you know? But there, were the, there was the confirmation. We got to believe that, shouldn't we? That we all have been indwelled by the power of the Spirit of God and that His presence in our lives, that we can confirm with each other what God is doing. And here it says that the Spirit spoke and said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And it says... Then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. Again, they is ambiguous. Oh, they, you're talking about the prophets? I mean, it is plural. It's not just Paul sent, or, or it was not just Manaean sent Paul and Barnabas away, or it wasn't just Lucius. It says they, it's plural. I, I believe it's better interpreted here that it's like the church themselves together collectively responded to God's spirit and sent them away. I really believe in so many of our churches today, we are, we are missing a sensitivity to the spirit of God. And we can have everything else. We can be blessed with all kinds of, all kinds of resources and gifts but I will tell you that we will see our work become anemic if it is not the power of the spirit behind us here they listened to the spirit they were sensitive to the spirit of God and finally they were committed to missions they were committed to missions these three verses, these verses that comprise this narrative, it really begins for us this missionary movement. Now, God had been working up until this time. God had. And God had even taken those things that were meant to be evil, like persecution, and he had used them for his good. Even after Stephen's stoning, the gospel was going forth and, and people were... People are being saved. So 
the mission of God was occurring. We know that. Even in Antioch, as they went to preach and teach, people had come to a saving knowledge of Christ. But now there's something different. Instead of persecution driving believers out, how does the Holy Spirit initiating these missionary moments? And it says that the Spirit as he spoke called Barnabas and Saul out for the work to which I've called them. Now, get this. The church had been sensitive to the Spirit to hear and to sin now. But the I think one of the reasons the church was so sensitive to the Spirit's work is because the leaders had demonstrated had demonstrated a sensitivity to the Spirit. What do I mean by that? You notice in verse 2 it says, to which I have called them. Again, the tense of the verb says that this was a past act with abiding consequences. So in other words, God had already called them some time back. He had already done that. And it had this ongoing abiding consequence in their life. They had been called And they had recognized the sensitivity. Here at this point, it wasn't just that they were surprised as Dr. Truett was. In this case, Saul and Barnabas knew what God was wanting them to do. The church just confirmed it. They were sensitive to the Spirit. And then the church demonstrated sensitivity to the Spirit. And then you see a church that is committed to missions. And they're so committed to missions, they're willing to give up their best. They're willing to give up their best. Did you notice who the Spirit called out? Barnabas and Saul, who we'll know as Paul. Barnabas and Saul. The two bit. Now I hate to tell you, but I could hear Deacon's meeting going something like this. Does it have to be them? No offense, Manan, but don't you think God's calling you out? You know, I, I'm not trying to knock Lucius and his giftedness at all, but can't we send Lucius instead? I mean, it's got to be Barnabas and Saul. Barnabas was the one that came and saw the grace of God here, and he was the one that invested his life for a year. He went and got Saul, and we love them, and we don't want to lose them. Been there? They were willing to give up their best for missions. And in this case, they were willing willing to give up the most prominent teachers and workers to go. Will we be that sacrificial in our going and in our missions? We be willing to give up our best. Will you be willing to give up your children or your grandchildren? Will you be willing to say, God, I surrender them to you? If that is what you are calling them to do, then we will be obedient to your word. We will give them over. In verse 3 it says, they sent them away. That word sent, again, 
the word means that they did it decisively. It wasn't like they wavered. It was like this, God spoke decisively and notice they responded decisively. If you look at those verbs, God spoke, they sent. That kind of obedience. They sent. That word can mean to send with purpose. And we know that Saul and Barnabas are going to be sent with purpose. Because look, when God sends you somewhere, he's always going to send you with purpose. Always. He sends with purpose. And he, the purpose is going to be to advance the gospel, to preach his good news. People will come to faith in him. It's going to be an awesome trip. Now, I would just point out this. We know that this is going to be an awesome movement. Saul and Barnabas could expect that it was going to be an awesome movement. But they weren't assured of anything but the presence of Christ in their life. They didn't know how it was going to go. And yes, there are going to be some difficulties that they'll face. But they were willing to go. They were sent out with purpose. But, you know, as I was studying this week, there was a couple other things that just kind of jumped out at me when I looked at that word sent. I'd never noticed this. I mean, I've preached this passage before, but I had never noticed this until I studied this week. They sent them. That word sent can mean released or freed from bondage. I'm not saying that's exactly what it means here, but I'm saying in other places in the New Testament, it is translated released, freed from bondage. It's actually a word that is used for divorce. That's a strong word that they were released. It was as though they were divorced at this point from this church. Look, I don't know about you, but I mean, I, I can get so comfortable. I can get so comfortable in my church setting that I forget the opportunities that God can call me to. Um, when I was finishing my last few weeks at Zachary, people would ask me, are you leaving because of this? Why are you leaving? What you do? You know, what's going on? And I could honestly say to them that it's probably one of the most peaceful times in life of Zachary. Not to, not to say that other times are bad, but one of the more peaceful times. I looked at my administrative assistant who um, had probably worked with me as closely as, as anybody else, knowing my schedule, knowing things that went on. And, and I said, you know, you know, um, in eight and a half years, I can leave and know that I'm not running away from anything. That's a good thing to know, isn't it? Shouldn't be running from stuff. And I said, and you know that. You know me better than anybody else, Debbie. I said, you know that. She said, I know. But there are times when you grow so comfortable. And I've got to think back. I mean, Saul and Barnabas. I mean, the church was going great. Wouldn't you say? This church at Antioch, it is the happening church. It is the church that is really 
where you see the center of Christianity moving to in Antioch, at least the center of activity, of the Christ activity. And now they got to go. And the church sends them. And it is all, all, almost like they are freeing them from the bondage that they've experienced. What bondage? It's just good bondage of the relationships, of the other things that are entangling them there in Antioch. Now they're saying, go, we are freeing you from this. Because God has spoken. And they were committed to missions. And they were willing to be sacrificial for the purpose of missions. Whether it was giving up the most noted leaders they had whether it was giving up relationships that they would experience, they were willing to be missionary in their spirit. Any church, any church, if it is to be a first-class church, must be a church committed to missions. Not just giving, but going. But not just going, Sacrificially going. A missionary church. Dr. Herschel Hobbs, the great Southern Baptist statesman. Dr. Hobbs said that no church deserved the ground that it was planted on if it was not missionary in its spirit. We don't deserve the ground that we're sitting on today if we're not taking the gospel to our community, to our state, to our nation, and to the nations. God wants us to be more concerned about our sending capacity, about sending people, more concerned even than about our city capacity that we have. He wants us to be a missionary church. You see why I get excited when I read through this description of the church at Antioch. I hope you've just begun to experience that excitement also because it is a first-class church. Just today in these three verses, to be engaged in worship as it is, to be sensitive to the Spirit of God in its life, and to be committed to missions and going. What a challenge for us. And today, as we have this moment of of invitation, maybe it's it's time for you to come and recommit yourself to worship or to missions. Or maybe it's just to come and say, God, I want to be open and sensitive to your spirit in my life. I want you to speak clearly and loudly, and I want to be obedient to you. Maybe it's just for our church that you would come and pray for this morning, and you would say, God... Whatever you lead us in, may you give us that unity of your spirit that we will know what you would have for us. This is a time for you to reflect and to think and to pray where you are in your pew or perhaps here at this altar. Or maybe today you just need to come, some of you, and say, I want to be an official part of this church. You come on your faith in Christ Jesus and follow him 
Maybe you need to come and do that today. Be obedient, whatever God's calling you.